Chapter One of the Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translator unknown. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Timmerman Vaughan. Chapter One: Two Unknown Ladies. The winter of seventeen eighty four, that monster which devoured half France, we could not see, although he growled at the doors while out the house of Monsieur de Richelieu, shut in as we were in that warm and comfortable dining room. A little frost on the windows seems but the luxury of nature, added to that of man. Winter has its diamonds, its powder, and its silver embroidering for the rich man, wrapped in his furs, and packed in his carriage, or snug among the wadding and velvet of a well-warmed room. Hoar-frost is a beauty, ice a change of decoration by the greatest of artists, which the rich admire through their windows. He who is warm can admire the withered trees, and find a sombre charm in the sight of the snow-covered plain. He who, after a day without suffering, when millions of his fellow-creatures are enduring dreadful privations, throws himself on his bed of down between his fine and well-aired sheets, may find out that all is for the best in this best of all possible worlds. But he who is hungry sees none of these beauties of nature. He who is cold hates the sky without a sun, and consequently without a smile for such unfortunates. Now at the time at which we write, that is, about the middle of the month of April, three hundred thousand miserable beings, dying from cold and hunger, groaned in Paris alone, in that Paris where, in spite of the boast that scarcely another city contained so many rich people, nothing had been prepared to prevent the poor from perishing of cold and wretchedness. For the last four months the same leaden sky had driven the poor from the villages into the town, as it sent the wolves from the woods into the villages no more bread, no more wood, no more bread for those who felt this cold, no more wood to cook it. All the provisions which had been collected, Paris had devoured in a month. The provost, short-sighted and incapable, did not know how to procure for Paris, which was under his care, the wood which might have been collected in the neighborhood. When it froze, he said the frost prevented the horses from bringing it. If it thawed, he pleaded want of horses and conveyances. Louis the Sixteenth, ever good and humane, always ready to attend to the physical wants of his people, although he overlooked their social ones, began by contributing a sum of two hundred thousand francs for horses and carts, and insisting on their immediate use. Still, the demand continued greater than the supply. At first, no one was allowed to carry away from the public timber-yard more than a cartload of wood. Then they were limited to half this quantity. Soon the long strings of people might be seen waiting outside the doors, as they were afterwards seen at the baker's shops. The king gave away the whole of his private income in charity. He procured three million francs by a grant, and applied it to the relief of the sufferers, declaring that every other need must give way before that of cold and famine. The queen, on her part, gave five hundred louis from her purse. The convents, the hospitals, and the public buildings were thrown open as places of asylum for the poor, who came in crowds for the sake of the fires that were kept there. They kept hoping for a thaw, but heaven seemed inflexible. Every evening the same copper-colored sky disappointed their hopes, and the stars shone bright and clear as funeral torches through the long cold nights, which hardened again and again the snow which fell during the day. All day long thousands of workmen with spades and shovels, cleared away the snow from before the houses, so that, on each side of the streets, already too narrow for the traffic, rose a high, thick wall blocking up the way. 
soon these masses of snow and ice became so large that the shops were obscured by them and they were obliged to allow it to remain where it fell paris could do no more she gave in and allowed the winter to do its worst december january february and march passed thus although now and then a few days thaw changed the streets whose sewers were blocked up into running streams horses were drowned and carriages destroyed in the streets some of which could only be traversed in boats paris faithful to its character sang through this destruction by the thaw as it had done through that by the famine processions were made to the markets to see the fisherwomen serving their customers with immense leathern boots on inside which their trousers were pushed and with their petticoats tucked round their waists all laughing gesticulating and splashing each other as they stood in the water these thaws however were but transitory the frost returned harder and more obstinate than ever and recourse was had to sledges pushed along by skaters or drawn by rough-shod horses along the causeways which were like polished mirrors the seine frozen many feet deep was become the rendezvous for all idlers who assembled there to skate or slide until warmed by exercise they ran to the nearest fire lest the perspiration should freeze upon them all trembled for the time when the water communications being stopped and the roads impassable provisions could no longer be sent in and began to fear that paris would perish from want the king in this extremity called a council they decided to implore all bishops abbeys and monks to leave paris and retire to their dioceses or convents and all those magistrates and officials who preferring the opera to their duties had crowded to paris to return to their homes for all these people used large quantities of woods in their hotels and consumed no small amount of food there were still the country gentlemen who were also to be entreated to leave but m lenoir lieutenant of police observed to the king that as none of these people were criminals and could not therefore be compelled to leave paris in a day they would probably be so long thinking about it that the thaw would come before their departure which would then be more hurtful than useful all this care and pity of the king and queen however excited the ingenious gratitude of the people who raised monuments to them as ephemeral as the feelings which prompted them obelisks and pillars of snow and ice engraved with their names were to be seen all over paris at the end of march the thaw began but by fits and starts constant returns of frost prolonging the miseries of the people indeed in the beginning of april it appeared to set in harder than ever and the half-thawed streets frozen again became so slippery and dangerous that nothing was seen but broken limbs and accidents of all kinds the snow prevented the carriages from being heard and the police had enough to do from the reckless driving of the aristocracy to preserve from the wheels those who were spared by cold and hunger it was about a week after the dinner given by m de richelieu that four elegant sledges entered paris gliding over the frozen snow which covered the cour la reine and the extremity of the boulevards from thence they found it more difficult to proceed for the sun and the traffic had begun to change the snow and ice into a wet mass of dirt in the foremost sledge were two men in brown riding-coats with double capes they were drawn by a black horse and turned from time to time as if to watch the sledge that followed them and which contained two ladies so enveloped in furs that it was impossible to see their faces it might even have been difficult to distinguish their sex had it not been for the height of their coiffure crowning which was a small hat with a plume of feathers from the colossal edifice of this coiffure all mingled with ribbons and jewels escaped occasionally a cloud of white powder 
as when a gust of wind shakes the snow from the trees. These two ladies, seated side by side, were conversing so earnestly as scarcely to see the numerous spectators who watched their progress along the boulevards. One of them, taller and more majestic than the other, and holding up before her face a finely embroidered cambric handkerchief, carried her head erect and stately, in spite of the wind which swept across their sledge. It had just struck five by the clock of the church Saint-Croix-d'Antin, and night was beginning to descend upon Paris, and with the night the bitter cold. They had just reached the Porte Saint-Denis, when the lady of whom we have spoken made a sign to the men in front, who thereupon quickened the pace of their horse, and soon disappeared among the evening mists, which were fast thickening around the colossal structure of the Bastille. This signal she then repeated to the two other sledges, which also vanished along the Rue Saint-Denis. Meanwhile, the one in which she sat, having arrived at the Boulevard de Menilmontant, stopped. In this place few people were to be seen. Night had dispersed them. Besides, in this out-of-the-way quarter, not many citizens would trust themselves without torches and an escort, since winter had sharpened the wants of three or four thousand beggars, who were easily changed into robbers. The lady touched with her finger the shoulder of the coachman, who was driving her, and said, Weber, how long will it take you to bring the cabriolet? You know where? Madame wishes me to bring the cabriolet? asked the coachman, with a strong German accent. Yes, I shall return by the streets, and as they are still more muddy than the boulevard, we should not get on in the sledge. Besides, I begin to feel the cold. Do you not, petite? said she, turning to the other lady. Yes, madame. Then Weber, we will have the cabriolet. Very well, madame. What is the time, petite? The young lady looked at her watch, which, however, she could hardly see, as it was growing dark, and said, A quarter to six, madame. Then at a quarter to seven, Weber. Saying these words, the lady leapt lightly from her sledge, followed by her friend, and walked away quickly, while the coachman murmured with a kind of respectful despair, sufficiently loud for his mistress to hear, Oh, mein Gott, what imprudence! The two ladies laughed, drew their cloaks closer round them, and went tramping along through the snow with their little feet. "'You have good eyes, André,' said the woman who seemed the elder of the two, although she could have not have been more than thirty or thirty-two. "'Try to read the name at the corner of the street. Rue du pont aux Choux, madame.' "'Rue du pont aux Choux. ah, mon Dieu, we must have come wrong. They told me the second street on the right. But what a smell of hot bread!' "'That is not astonishing,' said her companion, for here is a baker's shop. "'Well, let us ask there for the Rue Saint-Claude,' she said, moving to the door. "'Oh, do not go in, madame, allow me,' said André. "'The Rue Saint-Claude, my pretty ladies,' said a cheerful voice. "'Are you asking for the Rue Saint-Claude?' The two ladies turned toward the voice, and saw leaning against the door of the shop a man who, in spite of the cold, had his chest and his legs quite bare. "'Oh, a naked man!' cried the young lady, half hiding behind her companion. "'Are we among savages?' "'Was not that what you asked for?' said the journeyman baker, for such he was, who did not understand her movement in the least, and accustomed to his own costume, never dreamt of its effect upon them. "'Yes, my friend, the Rue Saint-Claude,' said the elder lady, hardly able to keep from laughing. "'Oh, it's not difficult to find. Besides, I will conduct you there myself.' And suiting the action to his words, he began to move his long bony legs, which terminated in immense wooden shoes. "'Oh, no!' cried the elder lady, who did not fancy such a guide. "'Pray do not disturb yourself. Tell us the way, and we shall easily find it.' First street to the right,' he said, drawing back again. 
Thanks, said the ladies, who ran on as fast as they could, that he might not hear the laughter which they could no longer restrain. End of chapter 1